I decided to watch the National Parks America's Best Idea. And I have never felt like more patriotic in my life. That inspired me then to take a group of friends to Zion just to start like kind of making this a part of my life. And I was like, I think that there's something here. And there's also something specifically here for immigrants, for people of color, for Native people, for Black people, because we are here. We are in these spaces and we have been integral in building these spaces. You look at places like Yosemite, Wawona Road was built by Chinese immigrants. But those aren't the stories that we're hearing. And I feel like it's a narrative that is too limited. That's Misha Youssef. This year, Misha decided to go out and combine two of my all-time favorite things, the outdoors and podcasting. In January of 2021, Misha spent six weeks on the road, visiting national parks and recording a new podcast series called Hello Nature. The show explores her experience in the national parks as a woman of color. You might not have heard of Misha's name before, but you might be familiar with some of her work. Misha produced the Michelle Obama podcast, And she also produced Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen's podcast, Renegades, Born in the USA. Misha's work is incredible. I highly recommend you go listen to some of her shows, but of course, only after you finish this episode. Come on, guys. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Misha Youssef is a Pakistani-American podcast producer and host. She's the CEO and founder of Dustlight Productions, a podcast company that makes sound-rich, impactful shows. Next month, Misha is releasing Hello Nature. It's her new show from REI Co-op Studios, and it delves into her newfound love of national parks. The show tells stories about parks through the voices of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. To make the show, Misha traveled to eight national parks, many of which she'd never seen before. Six weeks in national parks is no joke. Did you ever spend any time in the parks growing up as a kid? I didn't even know there were national parks. (laughs) Like I had no idea they existed. I'd moved here from Pakistan to Los Angeles when I was 11 and a half. And my family, you know, we had grown up kind of in the suburbs of Los Angeles, didn't really go out hiking or camping or doing any of that stuff. It's funny, my parents joke, they're like, our families came from villages way back when, like, why would we, why would we go sleep on the ground and like, you know, forage for food? Like, it's like, why are we trying to go back in time? So yeah, my parents did not. I mean, it's interesting because they're like, they're, they have interactions with nature in so many other ways, you know, like my mom, Grew up in a family that was like small batch, organic, antibiotic free, like free range way before that was a thing because they had their own little farm in their backyard. But they were living like very much like in touch with nature in that way. My dad, you know, grew up playing cricket in the streets with his friends. And so there's like being outdoors was was a part of their lives. And Carolyn Finney, one of our guests, says this a beautiful thing about like, you know, people always ask me, like, what was your first experience with nature? Like my first experience with nature was coming out of the womb. Like we are part of nature. But I think that in the traditional sense of like camping, hiking, all of that, like I would say like my experience with outdoors was like getting bitten by mosquitoes and like getting really annoyed, you know, 
we didn't even really like picnic in parks. I was so insecure being an immigrant. I was like, I don't know the right clothes to wear. I don't know the right activities to do. I don't know how to interact with this, you know? Because you came when you were 12. That's like seventh grade ain't easy for anybody, especially when you're the new kid from another country. What was that like? Um, Really hard. I don't know. Like it's, it would have been one thing if I was like a loser kid in Pakistan and came here and like, that was the narrative, but it's completely different to be like, oh, well, like I'm the coolest kid. Like, and then move countries and realize, oh my gosh, like not only am I not cool, I don't even know how to become cool. Like the way in which they speak and live and what is cool is so foreign. How do I even understand the rules? And I remember my sister and I like were on a mission. We were like, we will be popular, like whatever it takes, like we're going to make it happen. And we did not. We definitely failed. <laughs> how did you get into storytelling and Especially, how did you get into audio? That wasn't even an option for me in college. So it's so cool meeting someone who like, it was out there when you were studying it. For me, audio was not my first choice. It was not what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. It was my decision, not my parents. They had not imposed. They were like very chill. And I'd always kind of thought about like, maybe I'll go into politics or whatever, Long story short, I did terribly in school. I was like not even showing up to class. And, you know, in college, it really came to a head. I was pretty depressed and I was almost going to fail out of college and decided instead of just like screwing it all up, I was going to take a quarter off. And during that quarter off, I realized I no longer wanted to go to law school and took a quarter off and started working for my college radio station at UCI and made a show called Dates and Other Mistakes. And it was about love and it was terrible. <laughs> but um, it was so much fun, you know, and all the hard parts of it, like operating the board and prepping the scripts and all of that, like, was so exciting. And I enjoyed the agony and like the hard work. And I think it started to click for me. I was like, this is something I really want to do. And this is pre-serial, pre-startup. Like the only viable path for audio is like NPR. And I told my parents, I was like, I'm going to switch paths. I'm going to do this. I know I'm about to graduate. Like this is how, like I'm changing my mind. And they're like, okay, whatever you want to do, like get a master's. So I was like, how am I going to get a master's? Like I have terrible grades. And I started just cold emailing professors at journalism schools and different journalists. And I was like, listen, I really want to do this thing. I started pitching articles left and right and ended up like getting into Northwestern and a bunch of journalism schools, went to Northwestern. There was no formal audio program. So I worked with one of my professors to help develop like an advanced audio course. And around this time, like Serial and Startup had started coming out and I took like a radio workshop that's since discontinued called Transom Radio Workshop. Then I did a series of jobs at different places like public radio stations and Sirius XM and wasn't making anything. And I was like, I need to make something like if I'm going to do this, I need to make something and decided to start my own podcast independently called Beginner. And that's kind of where like that came out in 2017. And that is when like things really started to pick up and people started to notice my work and um, more opportunities kind of came up. Tell us about these opportunities because they're <laughs> big opportunities. You said that very nonchalantly, like, oh, some opportunities, but like with, you know, yeah. the former president of the United States. 
Yeah. I mean, it was still a little bit longer before I, I met them, but I ended up working at the NPR station in LA at KPCC and made two podcasts, a show called The Big One, Your Survival Guide, which really blew up. Um, it's about the earthquake anticipated for LA and we did an original score and people got really excited about it. And it got a lot of people to prepare for the impending earthquake and FEMA invited us to speak. And then I made a show called Tell Them I Am that came out in Ramadan 2019, season one. And that basically featured all Muslim voices, but not talking about being Muslim. The premise of it was like, what's a small moment in your life that defined you? And they were these like beautiful, sound-rich vignettes in the lives of sometimes famous, sometimes unknown Muslim people. And the goal of that was just for people to like fall in love with Muslims, you know, and like kind of combat Islamophobia in this really subtle sort of way. And that show also got a lot of attention. And so from there, I was like, wait, I'm young. I have nothing to lose. Like, I got to <laughs> If I'm going to do something big, I got to do it now. And, you know, a lot of people were starting podcast production companies. So I decided to start my own production company and was approached by um, Higher Ground Audio, the Obama's production house. And they were like, hey, do you want your first project <laughs> to be our podcast? which is like still kind of unbelievable if, if you think about it, you know, it was really cool. So they didn't just <laughs> call you out of the blue. You admit some connection because you hustled. You started putting yourself in situations where these possibilities could happen. So what situation did you put yourself in that someone from higher ground would call you? There were a couple of things, actually. Um, and I love that you asked this question because it's not it's I hate the idea of like overnight success or like this just fell into my lap or like I'm so lucky, you know, the first thing was I got a scholarship through the White House Correspondents Association when I was in at Northwestern. I think ultimately that was because the professors knew me really well. And I had started building relationships with them even before I came to the school. So the school chose um, three scholars and I was one of them to go to the White House Correspondents Association dinner in 2016, which was Barack Obama's last year as president. And I went there and as part of the scholarship, you know, was presented an award and also met with the president and the first lady. And we had a brief conversation. There wasn't like any kind of like connection built at that point, but there was a sense of familiarity. And then I just really believe in building real relationships. Like I don't believe in networking. I don't think that like it gets you very far to have transactional relationships with people. I think that like if you're in the room with awesome people, there are two things that you can do. One is be an equal. Don't revere them so much that you're kind of kissing their ass or making them feel like you're not actually worthy of being there because you are worthy of being there. You wouldn't be in the room if you weren't worthy. So you might as well believe it. And the other is don't like build transactional relationships. Don't try to make it like quid pro quo. I'll do this for you now. You do this for me at this point. But instead, like take a genuine interest in who people are and what they're doing with their work and what they're doing with their lives. And um, I was lucky enough to have built a friendship with Mukta Mohan, who was formerly at Crooked Media. And she ended up getting recruited by Higher Ground Audio. And she and I had wanted to work together for a while. So when I started the production company, she reached out. She was a fan of the big one and of Tell Them I Am. And they were really excited about elevating a new voice and a new company rather than going with the big players that were already established in the industry. Because they do tend to do that. They like to highlight people who haven't gotten opportunities up to that point. 
So that's kind of how they approached me. They brought us in for a meeting and we just connected. You know, we had the same vision for what we were trying to do. No matter how famous you are, even if you're the Obamas, we're all human. I love what Misha said about being in the same room as famous people to just act like an equal because you are. We can all show up as our authentic selves and build meaningful relationships. The Obama's podcasts have been a hit and Misha is on to her next projects. This year, she started working on Hello Nature. To make this show, Misha and her producer, Jonathan Shiflett, road tripped around America for six weeks. They recorded her journey as she visited national parks and interviewed a variety of guests along the way. So what's the premise of Hello Nature? The premise essentially is to answer one question, which is the parks are public, right? They're supposed to be our inheritance. So are they actually for everyone? And what does it mean for them to be for everyone? And through that, we kind of explore these little tiny histories that have either been told and have not gotten mainstream attention or have never been told before within, you know, a mainstream context. And there are stories of people present day who are doing amazing things within the park and and creating accessibility specifically for BIPOC people. So there's, you know, the arc of like tracing me and my journey going through this whole experience for the first time and learning what I'm learning, but also actually meeting these incredible people um, past, present and hopefully future and learning about what they're doing in the parks and how they're creating room for everybody. You talked earlier about how you didn't grow up as an outdoorsy person. So what changed? Like, why did you all of a sudden decide to make a nature show? Never grew up doing it. Didn't come across it until my best friend in college and her husband, who was big on camping, were like, hey, you should join us for this trip. And we ended up going to Big Sur. And that was like my first real like outdoors experience. So really, really limited experiences. But that trip to Big Sur, I started to kind of feel like something was unlocking within me. And then when I was 21, um, I went to Joshua Tree for a meditation retreat called Vipassana. And it was in 29 Palms, like right outside of the National Park. It's like a 12-day silent meditation retreat. Um, my whole life had like kind of gone to shit. And I was like, okay, I need to figure out what's going wrong. How do I tap back into myself? And I remember Shelby just being blown away. Like I, I did not... Joshua Tree is really subtle beauty, but it feels like magical. Um, And I remember there was nothing to do because I was meditating for like 12 hours a day. So I would wake up at sunrise and we'd have a break from meditation around like 630 when you'd see like the sky. You can see the entire sky there, right? And you'd see the sky like turn colors. It was like pinks and like oranges and blues and yellows. And It was those like turns of the light in Joshua Tree that I think like really started to make me feel like, wait, this is something I want to explore more. Like I need to be in these kinds of spaces. And I was like, oh, Joshua Tree is a national park. And actually we have like other national parks. And this is like fast forward several years. I decided to watch the national parks, America's Best Idea. And I have never felt like more patriotic in my life. Like I was just like, oh my God, this is brilliant. I was addicted. I was watching it like every single night, hours and hours and hours. And that inspired me then to take a group of friends to Zion. 
And just to start like kind of making this a part of my life. And I was like, I think that there's something here. And there's also something specifically here for immigrants, for people of color, for Native people, for Black people in America, because we are here. We are in these spaces. And we have been integral in building these spaces, right? Like you look at places like Yosemite, Wawona Road was built by Chinese immigrants, but those aren't the stories that we're hearing. What we're hearing about are people like Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir. And at that time, like, to me, they were massive heroes still. And there are really positive things that they have done. But those are stories that we keep hearing over and over and over again. And I feel like it's it's a narrative that is too limited. And that's not inclusive. That doesn't make us all feel like it's it's our inheritance, the national parks. So I pitched this idea to REI and they were super into it. I was really surprised and we we're going to do it in the summer of 2020. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so the show has been a long time coming. I was finally able to go out to the parks and start working on it in 2021, end of 2020, um, beginning of 2021. And yeah, now, now we're coming close to, you know, the release of the show. How did you find the people? to interview for this show? Did you just like show up at the national park and start talking to people or did you do some planning? No, we did actually entirely planned interviews because we were worried about COVID and how that would impact things. We had a couple of like impromptu on-site interviews with visitors. Sometimes we ended up getting connected to people through someone we had already met in the park, like a ranger or um, a scientist or someone working right outside of the park on different kinds of things. And they'd be like, oh, actually, you know, you, who else you should meet is this person. And that person happened to be there. So we would interview them. So there was spontaneity in that way. But a lot of credit goes to my team. Francesca Diaz, Elizabeth Nakano, Jonathan Shiflett, Arwen Nix. They all worked really, really hard to help source amazing people throughout the parks. And we tried a lot of different methods. Like there were rangers that we reached out to. There were superintendents that we reached. We looked up who were the native tribes um, within those regions and reached out to those tribes and wanted to know who the best people to speak to would be. We read a lot of books about the history and, you know, present day stories of the different parks. We also, I, I like got super into like outdoors, diversify outdoors, like BIPOC outdoors Instagram. And, you know, kind of just was like, okay, who are all the people we need to follow? And it's like, once you're following like Latino outdoors and outdoor Afro and refuge outdoor festival and um, melanin base camp and whatever, like one thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. And then you start to see a lot of individuals, but a lot of also meeting people in the parks. And some of our most amazing stories came from guests that we met through intros while we were on site. Misha and her producer gathered hundreds of hours of sounds, interviews, and commentary from that trip. In researching and recording for their show, Misha connected with a larger community of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the outdoors. When we come back, we hear about Misha's trips to the parks, the highs and lows of being on the road with her producer for six weeks straight, and what she learned from the process. If you've been listening to the podcast this season, you'll know that I'm a big fan of my Sonos Realm. 
It's a smart speaker that's small enough to pack for any trip and strong enough to handle the occasional bumps and tumbles one might expect during an outdoor adventure. With the Sonos Roam, you get to bring your favorite sounds wherever you go. And if you need inspiration, check out Never Stop Exploring on Sonos Radio. It's a new audio series featuring nine different soundscapes from some of the North Face's most epic excursions. You can tune in to go climbing with Alex Honnold in Antarctica or some of Japan's tallest waterfall with James Pearson. Whether you're looking for a speaker that you can take anywhere or you need new content to add to your workday playlist, you can discover Sound Made Easy at Sonos.com. In the same pioneering spirit of our podcast, Teva is all about bringing wild ideas to life. An innovator in the sports sandal category, Teva has launched a brand new slip-on that delivers the same foot-hugging comfort as the original icon. Enter the Re-Ember, a next-generation camp shoe. This quilted slip-on offers all-terrain versatility with a durable rubber sole and water-resistant finish. But the best part? The Re-Ember is reimagined with recycled materials including a 100% recycled adventure-ready ripstop upper inspired by classic outdoor gear. So whether you're running around town, kicking back at the campground, or curled up on the couch, this cozy companion ensures toasty heat for tired feet. Go ahead, slip on and bliss out. Discover Teva's Re-Ember collection this fall with select colors available at your local REI and at REI.com. Nature is based on Misha's road trip to eight national parks. Visiting eight parks in six weeks is a lot of travel. Misha and her producer Jonathan Shiflett made that trip in January, so there were two major obstacles that they had to consider. First, in January 2021, we were still in the depths of the pandemic. That meant meeting and interviewing people required a lot of extra planning. Second, it was winter. Was there a moment where you're like, what am I doing? Yeah, no, there were I mean, there were 5,000 moments like that. But the one that sticks out the most by far is uh, we were in uh, Yellowstone National Park and we were supposed to camp. And we get there and we find out that actually it's going to be snowing that night. So camping is not an option, you know, and like our sleeping bags were only like minus 20 degrees. So we were like, we're not going to be warm enough. Like we can't camp. So we had to get like a spot last minute. We get a spot. We have no Wi-Fi, so we can't figure out like lodging and planning for the next day. The following morning, we were supposed to go at 5 a.m. and do some wolf spotting with Jeremy Sundaraj, um, who's one of the Yellowstone Wolf Project scientists. We have like no way of communicating with them, like because we can't get Wi-Fi anywhere and we have no service. And so we're like, okay, and we have no way of also checking the weather and really knowing like whether it's going to stop snowing, like what roads are going to be closed. Wake up super early. And I was like, okay, we have no choice. Like, we have to do this. I, like, kept slapping myself awake. It's completely dark. We can't see anything. I'm just, like, driving with my high beams on. And we get to um, the little spot that we're meeting Jeremy in. And we do the whole wolf spotting thing. 
And just as we are about to finish, we literally have like a massive snowstorm and they closed down all the roads in Yellowstone. And so we're outside of like Mammoth Springs. We haven't eaten. Like we've barely slept. We don't have a place to stay. We were on the west side of the park originally. We couldn't go back to the west side the same day. Like we literally had to get out of the park from the north side. And a bunch of people, what they were doing is they would get out from the north side, go to Gardner, Montana, and then drive up through Bozeman around back to the other side of the park to get to their original lodging. But since we didn't have a place booked, we were like, okay, screw it. We'll just drive down to Gardner. You know, when you're, like, traveling for a long time together, you start, like, bickering in these kinds of situations. <laughs> so uh, my producer and I are like, okay, no, you drive, I drive. Like, we're, like, shoveling snow off the car with, like, our bare hands and, like, with our poop shovels for backpacking. <laughs> Eventually, like, get the snow off the car. We're able to successfully, like, use the X mode in our Subaru and drive down this, like, super precarious road. We get to Gardner and we're like, we're going to get a hotel. We're going to be fine. And there's, like, no spots. Like, everyone's like, we only have one room. <laughs> and we walk into this one really cute hotel. And this guy, right away, he's like, so you guys need a place to sleep? And we're like, yeah, but we need two rooms. And he's like, okay, I don't have any rooms, but I'm going to call around. I'll find you a place. So he ends up calling a bunch of people and finding us a spot in this, like, super sketchy, like, Montana motel in Gardner. And we were able to, you know, get back to the other side of the park the next day and everything. But it was just like that day I was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like, why, why did we think doing them all back to back was such a good idea? Like, you know, you don't think about weather really like as much. And, and the fact that weather is changing from park to park within the same season because you're traveling like such great distances. And also these are wild spaces like the weather is also wild, you know. But that was that was early on. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm not cut out for this. I'm giving up. I'm going to give up. <laughs> so let's go back. What did you do in these eight national parks? Like, what were you doing there? What was kind of a typical? I realized no date was probably typical. But what, what did you try to do at each park? So we wanted to try like a variety of different hikes. I have not grown up hiking or camping. And so this was actually my first time car camping alone. I mean, I, I was with, you know, Jonathan, but I had only camped twice before and it had been in a big group setting where like we were sharing tents. Like I never had to pitch my own tent. I never had to like, you know, cook for myself in order to eat that night. I never had to like make myself breakfast, figure out how to shower with it. Because a lot of these campsites like are really, really nice, but there aren't, they're not like the super fancy, like hip camp type of vibe, you know, this is not glamping. Like you're shitting in a hole and like you're, <laughs> you're like washing your armpits with like whatever water you're using to like wash your dishes. And so part of it was just like getting used to like pitching a tent and like getting set up in different campsites and doing it quickly. By the end, Jonathan and I were racing to see who could do it faster. Part of it was also trying to do hikes that were harder and harder every park and trying to experience different types of hikes, trying to spot some wildlife. And, and the biggest part of the whole experience was just meeting the people who were there who were doing important work that deserved to be highlighted. So a typical day, I would say, was probably very chaotic waking up somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m. Um, the latest I think we probably got up was like 7 or 8 most mornings. There was a lot of driving in between parks. So anywhere from like 
eight to 16 hour <laughs> drives because we were driving throughout the whole country. And it was very much a road trip. So like lots of listening to great music, great podcasts, um, playing car games. And then when we were in the parks, we would usually try to fit in one or two big hikes. So in the Smokies, for example, I did Mount LeConte. It was my first hike alone ever. And that was like a really, really big moment that we'd been kind of, kind of leading up to. In Acadia, we did the Beehive. And then there were also, you know, little things that we did that I feel like were especially meaningful. Like we went in Acadia also, we went with Suzanne Greenlaw and she talks about and has worked on with the National Park, um, allowing Native people in the region to harvest sweetgrass on specific patches. And that's a traditional Native practice. And so we went and saw where they harvest sweetgrass and got to learn more about the practice and why it's important to kind of alter some of our scientific methods to make room for Indigenous and intuitive wisdom and also Indigenous methods, you know. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of like going and interviewing guests and getting to know them and doing activities with them. In Mammoth Cave, we did a historical tour with Jerry Bransford, who is the descendant of Matt and Nick Bransford, who were the original explorers of Mammoth Cave and were at the time enslaved and learned about, you know, his family history and how he had come to be a part of the park. So really, really meaningful moments in that way, too. I'm really curious, like, did you have a favorite park? Yeah, you know, I I get that question a lot. And it's, it's, yes, I do have a favorite park and I have like a second favorite too and a third favorite, but (laughs) I feel like it is really hard to pick a favorite based on like the beauty because they're all so different. You know, like they're all kind of like little, they're like different versions of heaven, you know? And I feel like it just depends on like what speaks to your heart because you can't actually be like, this is the most beautiful park I went to. Um, I oddly felt the most at home in Glacier. It has striking views, right? But it's not the most like striking thing at every turn. Like when you drive into Yosemite, immediately you're like, whoa, like big granite slabs, like El Cap you can see right away. And you have these like mystical, like almost fantastical waterfalls. So it's really visually striking. It's like, I always think of it as like, it's the height of your imagination. And then you have places like Zion or Arches where you go and you're like, I couldn't even have imagined this. Like, this is like Mars, you know, but again, striking. And I think Glacier is the kind of beauty that creeps up on you. And it's something that you can imagine, but like, I don't know. It felt to me like a warm hug to be there. It felt really right. Like I can't really describe it. Did you have one of these like, oh, I get why I'm here right now doing what I'm doing? Yeah, I definitely had that. Like I definitely was like, I'm I'm exactly where I was supposed to be. And, you know, there's something I felt that's so weird, but like I come from Pakistan and there is like, you know, it's part of the Himalayan mountain ranges and my parents are both like from like way back when are from like more mountainous regions. And I just, it felt so familiar. And I was like, why does it feel so familiar? Like I didn't grow up in Montana. Like I don't, it's, there's, there's a lot of white people, you know, not a lot of people who look like me, but it was something about the landscape that felt like a version of home. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this makes me want to go to like the rural areas of Pakistan, which I've never even visited and experienced them because 
it, it felt like it was like calling to me, you know? And th- I think that also felt like it wasn't just like, oh, I'm doing this. This makes sense. I'm supposed to be where I am. But also like, this is kind of foreshadowing what I'm supposed to do next. How did you grow and what did you learn from this experience? On this trip, I feel like the thing that I kept coming back to was there are a lot of things that I don't know how to do, you know, and there are a lot of things that people who come from similar backgrounds as me, like don't know how to do. And a lot of times I think that we take it to mean that we can't do it or that there's only one way to do those things. And that like, because there's no access point for us that we shouldn't try to create that access point for ourselves. And I think that for me, from park to park to park, I constantly was confronted by this idea that like, fear is always going to be there. And it's not about trying to get rid of fear. Like if that's the goal, that's unrealistic, and I'm just never going to achieve it. And I'm always going to fall short and feel shitty about myself. It's about getting comfortable with fear. And I'm not going to like overnight become a backpacker and start through hiking, you know, like 200 miles or whatever. But it's about doing a little bit more every single time you do the thing. And so I tried doing a hike alone in Big Bend, for example. At the beginning of the trail, I saw like poop, like fresh, unfamiliar poop. And I was like, oh, no, like there's an animal here. I know there are mountain lions in Big Bend. Like I shouldn't mess with this. I shouldn't do this alone. And um, this was like right by the Chisos Basin. So there are mountains. You know, it's it's not like it's like one of the lower territories where you might not encounter any mountain lions. So I started walking and a little bit further down the trail, I see another like batch of fresh poop. And I was like, I can't do it. Like I'm turning back. I'm not, I'm not risking this. This doesn't look like squirrel poop. I turned back and, you know, much later we ended up like Google imagesing like, (laughs) like mountain lion poop and like bear poop. And I found out that it was bear poop. So regardless, like avoided, you know, encountering a bear up close. But after that, I was really scared. And I was like, oh, my God, like, am I ever going to be able to do a hike alone? And ended up doing a much longer, much harder hike in the Smokies alone. And I realized that like doing a hike alone doesn't mean I can't make friends along the way or that I have to be like completely solo the entire time. And that made me realize that like just building up to it and like listening to my fear, getting comfortable with my fear, letting it tell me when I can or cannot do something is okay. It's it's on the way to accomplishing the thing. Fear is a really, really tricky one. And it's something that when we face it in nature, it becomes very visceral. Did you see any bears? I did. I did on my first hike ever on the entire trip in Yosemite. We did Upper Yosemite Falls and there was a bear really close and it was like coming towards us. And it was super heavily trafficked trail again, you know, very popular hike. And I just was like, oh my God, because somebody had warned us as we were coming up there, like they were coming down. They're like, hey guys, there's a bear up there. Just be careful. It was a few switchbacks away, but like, just be careful. 
And we get up a few switchbacks later and we see the bear, like just like it's a brown bear. It was so cute, but also so scary. It was like rushing in our direction. And I just was like, okay, we're turning around. Like we are not, I don't care. We were so close to the top. And I was like, I do not care. Like I am not about to get closer to that bear today. And I told everyone on the trail, I was like, you all should turn around. Like, don't keep going, you know? And that was that was a visceral moment for sure. Yeah, sometimes you have to just trust your gut. I would have probably turned around too. It's healthy to like see a bear and not want to get closer to it. Advice to people who want to start a podcast. You don't need anything to get started is my biggest piece of advice. Like just start. You can use your iPhone and you can use your whatever laptop you already have and whatever software garage band or Reaper that you can get for free and just make stuff like don't try to go get like the biggest sponsor or like hit up a bunch of people asking how to make it super professional before you even try to do it like just make something and fail and mess up and try to get better at the craft and don't create barriers in your own path by being like I can't do it unless I have this equipment or I can't do it unless I have that guest you know advice to people who just want to get outdoors and they're a little intrepid Yeah, just start by going on a hike in your neighborhood. Like there's so many trails. The All Trails app totally changed my life. I discover new trails all the time, like right around me. And you can filter it by like easy, moderate, hard and just start with like a bunch of easy trails. Have a picnic in your local park. You don't need to go to a national park. Try out a state park, you know. And then when you're ready, like maybe just drive through a national park that's nearby. You don't have to camp. You don't have to hike. You don't have to do anything super intense that you're not comfortable with. Build it up slowly, you know, just get out there and take friends with you. It's so much easier when you take friends or family. The mission of Dustlight of your production company is to evoke awe through storytelling. I love the word awe. So talk to me about how Hello Nature evokes awe. So normally when we watch like a nature documentary or see nature in TV or in real life, we see like grand views, panoramic, zoom out drone footage, right? Cinematic score, cinematic visuals. And obviously that evokes awe because you're really little in these big things. But something else that evokes awe is the tiny little things and the intimacy and noticing something that has always been there, but that has a completely different light shown upon it, both literally and figuratively. And because audio is a different medium than than visuals, right? Like hearing nature is different than seeing nature. I think that the approach that we're taking is instead of zoom out and feel small in this massive thing, it's zoom in and realize how big of an impact you have within this whole world, right? And both zoom in on on the little things like a scorpion on a little like plank of wood in Big Bend, but also zoom in on what's happening inside of you and what you are capable of doing with the people around you because nature is just as much the people who inhabit the landscapes that you are in as it is the actual environment and the plants and the birds and the animals and whatever. So what is the impact that you have on all of that? And what does that really mean for us present day and and in the future, you know, as a society? So that's kind of how we are working on evoking awe. Whether or not people feel something, we'll find out. (laughs) We'll find out when they listen.
You'll be able to check out a trailer for Hello Nature tomorrow, August 25th, and the first episode comes out on September 17th. You can find Hello Nature wherever you listen to podcasts. I can't wait to tune in and hear Misha's stories and interviews as she tells the stories from our national parks that we don't usually get to hear. Misha, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so cool to geek out with a fellow podcaster. I'm a big Misha Yusuf fan. We all love your work. And I loved chatting with you about podcasting and about our parks. If you want to learn how to make a podcast, I have a class, but Misha also has a free class. It's eight-part course. You can find it at howtomakeapodcast.org. To learn more about Misha, go to her website, mishayusef.com. That's M-I-S-H-A-E-U-C-E-P-H.com. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, I'm Shelby Stanger. It's written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas. And it's produced by the amazing Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we appreciate when you follow, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.